namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa aparuta de sangamatassa tawara ye sarvanta bhamunjantu satang So this opportunity to reflect on Dhamma, so what I say is listen to and reflect it upon, apply it to yourself. So this is a attraction many of us felt who were born not in Buddhist cultures, in Western countries, and we were, religion was always a source of belief, and kind of an enforced belief system. And where the Buddha Dhamma is not about believing in Dhamma, but finding out yourself, finding it yourself, knowing the reality of Dhamma, because we can define, you can't really define it, but we call it, translate Dhamma into reality. Absolute reality. Also, we're very fortunate to have many visiting monks and nuns assemble here today on the full moon of April. And so it gives me great pleasure to address the Sangha and the lay community at this time. And as the Sangha ages now, as many of us are getting old, and we have many years in, in, as monks or nuns or leaders, teachers, ajans, habits and so forth, and we have to deal with retirement about when you get old, you no longer feel you can actually carry through the duties of these, these kind of roles that we create when we're younger. So retirement for me was uh, has been a very excellent experience because being a leader, an abbot, a upachaya, a preceptor, and kind of a special monk for many years. I was the first Westerner to live with Lung Po Cha, and I took on responsibilities and establishing what is now known as Wat Chat when I was, had only eight uh, vasas, eight pansas. 
So putting in that position where you, an abbot, Jawawat in Thai is called Jawawat. You you're suddenly in a position of leadership where you're the is expected to perform all kinds of duties and responsibilities for the monastery, for the sangha, for the lay people. Now, many of us, when we ordain, we didn't ordain to become. Jawawats or, or abbots or teachers. And in the ordination procedure, they very definitely say we, we take these precepts in order to realize nibbana or the deathless or ultimate reality or realize the Dhamma for ourselves. So that's the whole thrust and importance of this particular form is not to to uh, cultivate just a new conditioned sense of self as a monk or a nun or a samana, but to realize ultimate reality, absolute reality for yourself. And that's clearly stated in the morning pujas, evening pujas, where we chant, Santidiko, Akaliko, Ehipasiko, Opanaiko, Bajatang, Waitidapawinu, every morning and evening. So this translates and we reflect on Dhamma, the apparent here and now, timeless, come and see for yourself, uh, leading inward. Instead of going out, you go inward and to be realized, each one for ourselves. So when you put in a responsible position as an abbot of a monastery, as a teacher and so forth, you create the karma of being becoming a, a teacher and an abbot. And uh, you can't help it, it's part of the karmic realities that we face as separate forms, as individual people. And so they, these these positions begin to, uh, you know, we begin to identify strongly with these positions. And just the word Ajahn, you know, somebody, monk or a nun, reaches ten pansas, take the name Ajahn, which means teacher, and that becomes our, our title, Ajahn Sumato, and so forth, is, is applied. And part of what we hear and expect from others. So, this is like karma, the, this Pali Sanskrit word is, is about the earth, fire, water, air elements. It's about the changing conditions that we experience through the uh, DNA that we acquired from our ancestors. It's about the, how we've been brought up, how we've been formed as a personality, as a cultural identity, with what we attach to in forms of uh, how we think and language we speak 
is all about karma because karma is is uh, impermanent. It's changing. So there's good karma, bad karma, and neutral karma, as we chant sometimes. And these these karmas are inevitable in this form, as a, in a form of a, when we identify with the conditions that we're aligned with, such as our own bodies, the gender of our bodies, the religion, the tradition, the the class identities, cultural identities, racial identities are all acquired identities. They're karmic. So we go use the word karma because they, they, they aren't absolute reality. Then they're dependent upon others, like karmic conditions are in the process of change. They're impermanent. So reflecting on this, on change, like when so much of the Vipassana style of teaching and insight meditation into the way it is, is to reflect on impermanence. Because as a separate individual, we tend to, bro- we tend to think of ourselves as permanently a, a physical body, what I look like the gender of my body, identifying strongly with with that, and identifying strongly with how we look, uh, or the color of the skin, and, uh, and so forth, we become very strongly fixated on ourselves as separate entities. And this is the cause of suffering. We suffer because we are identifying with something that is impermanent and basically unsatisfying. So karma, you know, if we, like in politics and so forth, there's so much, uh, you know, desire for power, desire to have power over others, to make political decisions, to to do things, get things done, or to make a name for herself, become a, a president or a prime minister. And so these are, that's a desire, isn't it? To desire to become president or prime minister. Is it skillful or is it wrong or right? Is it good or bad? It depends. But it is unsatisfying even when you get what you want it changes, you know, as we can see in our own political system, the unsatisfactoriness of becoming prime minister of Great Britain, how changeable it is. And how once you're in that position, you're, you're the subject of all kinds of publicity, both pleasant and unpleasant. The press, the media tend to be very critical of leadership and and so you're standing out in a position where you're kind of like a sitting duck in a ga- shooting gallery where your your particular presence is, is noticed by millions of people. So that's the karma of, of being a powerful person, being a celebrity, being famous is you're put in a position which 
is uh, noticed, noticeable, and criticized, praised or criticized accordingly. Now, when you retire, <clears throat> you know, the whole point of, uh, for me, a retirement, when I retired about 12 years ago, I uh, was to, I began to feel old and not as capable of fulfilling my duties and <clears throat> also I was getting weary of being the prominent figure. So then when I went to Thailand, I, I didn't have that position anymore. I was highly regarded because of my age and and I was treated well, but I didn't feel responsible for the monastery I was staying in. I didn't have any duties to perform. And suddenly I was left alone with nothing to do in terms of karmic, what I was used to doing as in my karmic past. So that leaves one with, you know, what I ultimately desired was to always be left alone. Because I thought that's where meditation really uh, is wonderful, where you're all by yourself and you're not responsible for all kinds of duties and responsibilities. So for the 10 years I spent in Thailand, I didn't have any responsibilities. And uh, the teacher, the head monk of Wat Pa Ratanawan in, in Thailand was very considerate, very supportive, very respectful. So, uh, you know, it wasn't just dismissed. But suddenly, there was nothing to do when you'd spent 50, uh, for over 45 years um, doing things, having all kinds of meetings and associations with others. And even with that is uh, the one of the last fetters to disappear in one's experience is restlessness. When you're suddenly left alone with nothing to do and then and then you can, you know, you've been meditating for many years, and so you, you sit in meditation, but then you can only do formal meditation so long, and then much of the day and night are spent with this restless feeling, physically restless, mentally restless. So I found out during this time that many and because of the restlessness, there was so much, you know, the desire to get rid of it. Because the idea of the fetters, the ten fetters that prevent us from realizing complete and perfect enlightenment, and one of the one one of the last fetters to to get through is restlessness. So, um, 
I consider it an occasion to, um, you know, to be particularly aware of this feeling of boredom and restlessness. So this, um, this left me with, uh, and boredom and restlessness are not very pleasant and, and interesting experiences. So, um, what do you do with that? What, how do you, you know, and of course I had the, the insight into being the witness to boredom and restlessness. I already had, I knew what to do, how to practice, but I also, the actual experience of it in kind of 24-7 in a life, when you're old, then it, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, quite a challenge to, to be able to just deal with it, to understand it, to bear with it. So, just remembering that my whole purpose and intention when I ordained was to realize Nibbana or the deathless reality or Dhamma, be free from all delusion. And then there's these fetters that prevent us from fulfilling that completely you can see, you know, the personal tendency, the karmic tendency as a personality is to, to take it all very personally. I've got to get rid of restlessness, conquer boredom, realize nibbana. And so I listened to this voice in my mind, this, this uh, wise not very wise voice that kept saying, you've got to conquer, you've got to deal with restlessness, face it up, face it, and just sit with it, be patient with it, and boredom. And so I had all the, the good advice on what to do with it, but the realities of existence in a karmic form, such as this human body sitting here, It's quite, uh, you know, it's not a pleasant experience. So, because I had that insight into what to do with it, then I began to just listen to myself, the, the view that I had to conquer it or get rid of it. <clears throat> So this was the warrior tendency in Ajahn Sumedho was to conquer and get rid of what these kind of conditions. But when you're living a life that is really boring, then uh, the reality of that life where you're no longer expected to attend pujas or meditation sessions, no longer teaching hardly at all, and the monastery is run by somebody else. 
and then because uh, because I was a uh, a foreign monk in Thailand with a title, then I was oftentimes sought after to meet, just meet me and have photographs taken of me sitting with lay people. And so <clears throat> I became kind of a celebrity figure in Thailand. And that was, you know, in terms of the ego, uh, quite quite nice to be considered an important uh, a celebrity monk or a famous monk. But then the ego, you know, that's the egos, wanting to be famous, wanting to be appreciated, wanting to, to uh, be respected by others was, you know, what the ego wants to do. So I listened to my ego. I wasn't trying to conquer it or restrain it or change it into trying to be humble and just according to the ideals of, of monastic life become some ideal that I had created in my mind but, but taking the posture of the witness of the, of the desire to, or the, or the uh, the ego appreciation of being respected and, and being a celebrity is like this. So I listen to it. It's a pattern of just listening to the ego rather than condemning it or trying to get rid of it. Then you realize that this realm of samsara, the cyclical, the cycles of the universe that we're part of, is an experience of restlessness. It's always changing. And so much of modern life for lay people, for monastics, is is to deal with, uh, you know, how to, how to deal with uh, boredom. Because life can be incredibly boredom, whether you're a monastic or a lay person. And modern life presents us with uh, so many options for distraction. So we have iPads, iPhones, DVDs, and on and on like that, that uh, are very entertaining and can get, you know, we can be excited or thrilled or horrified or caught in sentimental, romantic visions of, in, in movies and so forth, but being aware, this awareness is what is, doesn't change as we begin to trust it, as we take our refuge in Dhamma, trusting in, in awareness, conscious awareness, then we realize the, the reality of the one constant reality we experience through a lifetime is conscious awareness, consciousness itself, where the karmic conditions are forever changing. 
So it's an interesting time in, in the Western world where there's so much interest in consciousness because nobody can find it. You know, you try to define a consciousness and, uh, and try to, you know, is it in the brain or is it, uh, you know, is it personal? Is it, is it something we take personally? And there's many on YouTube these days, many discussions between scientists, psychologists, and spiritual leaders on the nature of consciousness. But trying to find consciousness is, uh, you know, we can't find it because that's what we are, we're conscious. And that is a fact. That's the fact of life we can depend on. Consciousness is like this. So it's here and now. It's not, it's not personal because to make it personal, I have to think and claim it. My consciousness, your consciousness, our dog's conscious, our horse's consciousness, and on and on like that, we can speculate about the nature of consciousness, whether uh, fish are conscious or amoebas, mosquitoes and flies. <clears throat> and that's all the thinking capabilities we have. We, we, we identify consciousness in a personal way. My consciousness is different from yours. So in the, but the consciousness, vijnana tattu in Pali, isn't personal. It's not karmic. It has no beginning and ending. It's immeasurable. And so I experience that as silence. Because in silence, when you stop thinking, or the gaps between thoughts, or moments in life where you, the thinking process stops, there's still consciousness. Consciousness is apparent here and now, so we all, it's like trying to find something that you are already, but you're looking for something else. So when we imagine consciousness as something to find, then we're looking for something we created as an idea, some concept we read in a Dhamma book, that we've got to find it and let go of consciousness. So we, you know, we end up trying to find something that we actually are all the time. Consciousness, here and now, timeless. Come and see, ehi means wake up and see for yourself. It's just as simple as standing or sitting or walking or lying down. Consciousness doesn't change. <clears throat> it's not, it doesn't, isn't called Ajahn Sumato or any other name. 
So you begin to to uh, trust this. When when I chant Aparuta Desang Amatasa Taura, the gate to the deathless is open. And that always inspired me, as I've given many talks on that quote. After the Buddha's enlightenment, he made this proclamation, the gate to the deathless is open. Now that is means that what can that actually mean? Is it just a, a, a proclamation made 2,565 years ago in India by the sage Gotama? But we chant that as part of a regular tradition in Pali, translating it into English or Thai. So to emphasize that when we take refuge in Dhamma, that's refuge in mindfulness here and now, apparent here and now and timeless. Now restlessness is all about time. Space and the five and the four elements You know, we, we had, when we reflect on that, could the elements exist if there wasn't space? Just some, some simple reflection. Could the earth, fire, water, and air, could our forms, our bodies, our senses, our eyes, ear, nose, tongue, and so forth, exist if there was no space? And space is, we can, notice it right here and now. So space is, doesn't have any qualities other than spaciousness. It's like this. It gives, it's where forms can manifest and disappear. And they're doing it all the time, whether it's physical, whether it's mental, emotional, these conditions are changing. These are seen creating a sense of a separate person, a separate self that we strongly identify with and is the very cause of suffering because we're attaching to what is unsatisfactory and not self. So consciousness is not self, anatta. It's apparent here and now so whether, you know, you, you think, of is, is Dhamma consciousness? And so then we get caught up with trying to define what is, you can't define. You can't define immeasurableness or deathlessness. It has, it doesn't, it isn't about space anymore or about consciousness, but about thinking and trying to find words in whatever language you're using to try to define something that is beyond definition. So the suffering of many of us is trying to define the indefinable, trying to realize Nibbana as a person, as a monk or a nun or a lay person trying to define that which is deathless 
and ultimately real here and now is what you actually are all the time. Whether you, and so the whole point of meditation is to realize that for yourself. So retirement gave me the opportunity to step back from performing the, these identities, perpetuating the sense of a, being a teacher or a head monk or a celebrity or anything like that to just being the puto, the witness of experience as we, because experience is all about the senses. Consciousness is not an experience. You don't experience it. You are that. Where what we experience is through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, through the emotions. We experience pleasure and pain, success and failure, praise and blame. And so experience is all based on on changing conditions that are not self. When you realize your true nature is Dhamma, mindfulness then is the gate to the deathless, is the door or the opening that we have as separate human beings, individuals, to ultimate reality. It's the kind of opening that the Buddha very clearly pointed to in his first sermon, The Four Noble Truths. So this is... Um, Retirement, then the experience of having a body, an old body, is, is a restless form still. It's not a tranquil form. Uh, it's not bliss. The, this old body sitting here is not blissful. It's not a, a tranquil. It has all kinds of uh, limitations, growing limitations due to age. then the point is whether I grasp it as, a, as myself or not. When I become an old man, an old monk, then I identify with, a, with an aged form, an old body. When I don't identify, when the body is what it is, it's like this. Age is not some pleasant, blissful experience. So, you know, then you realize your true nature is deathless, which is conscious awareness here and now. So that's why I encourage you to take your stand with, with, uh, with what is your true nature, your reality, rather than with a form that you have very little ability to control. You, know, you can't stop the aging process of a human body. Your karmic conditioning, 
you can't get rid of it. You know, it it is established when you're a child, how you you're, you're and with your inheritance, uh, what you inherit from your inherit from your ancestors. how you were brought up, your experiences as a child and teenage and youth and on and on to, to old age is all about karma, the, that which is changing in space. So what is it that can actually witness the changingness in space is Awareness, conscious awareness here and now. Or we translate that into Puto or the Buddha. When we take refuge in Buddha, that's what we're taking refuge in is, is awareness. So when we take refuge in Buddha or use the mantra Puto, it means it's just a, using a, a language, a, a word, to remind ourselves we're not Ajahn Sumato, uh, a retired monk, an old monk, but refuge in awareness. So Puto is translated as awareness here and now. And then Dhamma is recognized, is realized, it's real, it's, it's not a pretense, it's not a, a kind of metaphysical experience. It's not something far away or remote from anybody, no matter how good or bad that you might see yourself as being. Apparent here and now and timeless, then Sangha, Refuge in Sangha is, is about the form, like Sangha has a form. Those who practice in the right way, Supatipano, Ujupatipano, Yaya Patipano, and so forth. Those who, who actually take refuge in Dhamma as separate individuals. So Sangha is is a form that we take refuge in, and it's the impersonal. You know, when it becomes bhikkhu sangha, siddhadara sangha, and on and on like that, then it becomes something separate. But when we take refuge in sangha, when lay people take refuge in sangha, this is what the whole point is in practice, in the, in the awakening to Dhamma, apparent here and now and timeless. So suddenly these are words that, Pali words that we use, is a tradition, the Pali Theravada tradition that we, we've inherited and we're using, but what I'm trying to point out is how to use it rather than just become a Theravadan Buddhist. 
because a tradition is meant to be it's something helpful if we use it properly and if we I don't if we don't then we create a sense of separateness and delusions about ourselves about others about other religions we create all kinds of sense of of superiority or inferiority according to uh, the way we think, the way we've been conditioned to think and define. So retirement for me has been a great gift because it's something in old age that that uh, it's kind of like, you know, a, a blessing to be old and to have lived this life. Looking back on, on my life as a, as a monk, you know, it's been a great blessing because it's, uh, it's the teaching that I, you know, I first became interested in Buddhism when I was 21 years old. And so during this span of life that I've lived in this teaching of the Buddha, suddenly, uh, you know, it begins to make sense. At first it's, it's, it can inspire. At first I was inspired by Buddhism and... Uh, it, intellectually, it's quite pleasing. It makes sense. It's uh, it's quite liberal. It's not a fanatic kind of religious practice, and uh, it, it is uh, an opportunity to inquire into what's the meaning of life, what's the purpose, what are, what are we here for? So. And this is our, our subjects that we're all interested in. What, what, what are we here for? What is, what is the meaning of being born as a human being, a man or a woman, in this universe? What's going to happen in the future? You know, now in, in the media, there's so much concern about the future because they've got nuclear weapons, they've got climate change, they've got all kinds of uh, warlike situations happening on the planet. And, and uh, when we, uh, you know, when we look to the future, from what we hear in the media, or from experience in the here and now, the future is about change. You know, it's going to, everything's changing all the time. It's about fate and destiny and karma. About their views and opinions, prejudices and biases. At this time, it's interesting in, in the United States how all these, the great liberal period of where all kinds of uh, identities were suddenly allowed to manifest. 
dealing with the with the racial issues in the United States, dealing with gay lesbian issues in the United States, suddenly, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and so forth, all became very liberal. And now it's kind of going the opposite way, where there's these conservative kind of ideas of wanting to go back to various views of the past or very righteous attitudes about what God wants or believes in and so forth, and, and the and power struggles between men and women and uh, politicians. So this is the way things change. They don't change for the better. Things get better and then they go the opposite way. Like all conditioned phenomena is about arising and ceasing about being born, growing up, getting old, and dying. We live in a universe which is cyclical, so the Earth cycles around the sun, and the moon around the Earth, and the stars change, and everything's in this incessant, inexorable process of change. And when we identify with the body and our conditioned personalities, this is always changing, very unstable. To have emotional stability, what does that mean? To be able to have a stable emotion. You know, it's considered, you know, if somebody's unstable emotionally, it's a criticism. But emotions, their very nature is very dependent on other conditions. They're changing, they begin and end. So what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think and feel and experience through the senses is about samsara, about change, about impermanence, about old age, sickness and death. And then ask yourself, are you really a body? Are you really, uh, is this your ultimate purpose in life, is to be a male or female, or be a powerful figure, or are you convinced you're, you're nobody? You know, whatever you think, whether you think you're absolutely worthless and nobody, is still a creation of thinking being nobody and worthless is, is a judgment, isn't it, we create through thought. Being an important, very important person is a creation in thought. Or we might take the position, I'm not, I don't want power or fame, I would be content with, with my life if I just have enough to eat and a nice shelter. That's still thinking where conscious awareness is not thinking, doesn't have language, doesn't think, but it's apparent here and now. So you can't imagine it, because those imagination is about thinking. You create thoughts about it, define it, or dismiss it, or justify it, and what you can do, and play all kinds of intellectual games with it. 
But the reality, waking up to reality, to Dhamma, is realizing one's true nature. And that is liberation. That is freedom from suffering, the end of suffering. So in practice, in daily life, like being living here at Amarvati, you know, it's, uh, you know, you feel very grateful for the respect, the conditions that I have here as a physical form, as a retired old monk. So on the le a level of conditions, it's, it's very nice, very pleasant. In terms of practice, this whole idea that I've got to practice has kind of faded out. So the whole trust in all the admonitions and all the good advice I've received, suddenly they're all words that arise and cease. And when you let everything be what it is and allow things to cease, what's left is silent, Nibbana, end of suffering. So it's always here and now, the end of suffering is now when you wake up to your true nature. So I offer this as a reflection. Okay.